Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, this episode of Other People is brought to you by the Litbreaker Ad Network. Litbreaker helps book publishers, authors, and premium brands reach an engaged audience of authors, artists, editors, agents, producers, bloggers, media professionals, and readers. Lots of readers. Litbreaker ads appear on The Rumpus, Large Hearted Boy, HTML Giant, Full Stop, The Nervous Breakdown, Plowshares, and other high quality magazines and blogs featuring literary, arts-oriented, and pop culture content and above-the-fold advertising. Visit litbreaker.com for more information about advertising packages. Litbreaker is also accepting new partner sites in literary, general interest, mystery, creative writing, young adult, romance, and other book genres. That's the Litbreaker Ad Network, an ad network for the literary, arts, and culture web. Be sure to visit litbreaker.com for more information. It's an ad network for smart, interesting, readerly people. Go and advertise on it. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Dude, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. All right, right, everybody. Here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is better with caffeine. This is something to listen to while loitering in a bookstore. Thank you for being here. Thank you for tuning in. My name is Brad Listy. Uh, I'm here in Los Angeles, California, and I am pleased to be with you. I'm pleased to be communing with you uh, digitally for what is now the 193rd episode of this program. So, uh, what's happening out here? What can I tell you? Uh, it's a difficult world that we live in. I was online earlier today, and I saw that NASA published some photographs of Earth taken from Saturn, from the outskirts of Saturn's atmosphere, uh, amid the rings. We can do that now. And maybe we've been able to do that for a long time. But anyway, there's some uh, pristine photographs taken from Saturn looking back at Earth. And in the photographs, the Earth looks like a star, essentially. Uh, a tiny dot of white light amid countless other tiny dots of white light. 
which is worth contemplating, I think. And uh, so here we are, and it's a, a difficult uh, planet. It's a difficult existence. There's a lot of complexity and ambiguity and nuance and mystery and danger in our day-to-day experience. Or at least that's the way I tend to see it. A lot of, a lot of moral ambiguity in particular. This is what's been on my mind lately. This is what I want to talk about. Uh, I was at a wedding a couple of weeks ago. Okay. Uh, I was at a wedding and a friend of mine who was in attendance, uh, happens to be, uh, an alcoholic. And, uh, you know, we're not super close friends and yet we are. And what I mean by that is we don't talk on the phone. We're not like phone friends. Uh, but we cross paths once every couple of years, and he's an old buddy uh, from college whom I love dearly. And, uh, uh, you know, addiction, as many of you well know, it's a lethal illness. Full stop. No exaggeration. Uh, untreated, unchecked, it will eventually kill you dead. So uh, I was at this wedding, and my buddy. Uh, who is a wonderful guy, uniquely good-hearted and fun-loving in a uh, in a childlike way. Everybody loves him, but the fact of the matter is, he's got a big problem with uh, substance, and uh, he's a spectacularly bad drunk. <laughs> uh, he just can't handle it, and he doesn't see it quite yet. He uh, he won't go there despite repeated efforts on the part of uh, family and friends. So there I am. I'm at this wedding, standing off to the side of the dance floor, uh, watching my friend in what I believe was a blackout have uh, a drunken episode. And here I should interject and mention that my friend is a tremendous dancer. I'm not even kidding. Uh, He's completely without inhibition, drunk or sober. But especially when he's drunk, and it is uh, spectacular to watch. Women love him. He's a lot of fun, and uh, it's incredibly funny. And perhaps it's difficult for me to properly convey this. So let me try to give you an example of what I'm talking about here what I'm driving at. Uh, At one point during the festivities, a hip-hop song uh, came on the speakers. There was a DJ. And I believe it was a Notorious B.I.G. It was this song right here. You know this song. And so there was a cheer uh, from everyone on the dance floor as the song got started. And so I look over... And my buddy is at the edge of the dance floor, thrusting his pelvis repeatedly with tremendous uh, freedom and aggression. And he has both of his middle fingers uh, extended toward the sky. And he is facing a group of uh, senior citizens, essentially, seated around the dance floor. Older people, like aunts and uncles and grandparents and so on. 
if you can imagine this. <laughs> and, you know, like nobody knew uh, quite what to make of this other than to uh, either sit there in stunned silence or uh, to laugh. Which was the more common response because it's uh, shocking and it's funny uh, in its own way. And I got to admit, it was an authentically funny moment for me. It's just so absurd. And my buddy, too, you got to realize he's so harmless. He's one of those people that when you look at him, you know instantly that he's harmless. And he is uh, thrusting his pelvis and he's giving uh, the double middle finger to a bunch of uh, retirees. And he's almost 40. (laughs) So hopefully that paints a picture. You sort of had to be there. And so, you know, only in the aftermath of all of this did I pause to consider uh, the grimmer reality of the situation, the moral ambiguity uh, that the situation presents. You know, the fact that addiction is a lethal illness and what I was laughing at essentially was my buddy acting out in the throes of his afflicted state. Which is to say, I was laughing at a terminally ill man as he exhibited, in acute fashion, symptoms of his dire illness. Which feels kind of fucked up, you know? (laughs) And yet when I think about it, I, I chuckle, I smile, which makes me wonder if I'm a horrible person. It's very confusing. And, uh, I think it's relatively normal. This sort of thing. If not specifically, then uh, thematically. I think what I'm talking about uh, happens often in the human sphere. Or on the human sphere. The planet Earth. Which looks like a star. And which is a tiny dot of white light amid countless other tiny dots of white light. In an infinite black vacuum of absolute, total emptiness. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest today is Nick Antosca. He is the author of several books and also a successful television writer. He recently joined the staff of the show Believe, which is due out from NBC in the not-too-distant future, 
and is helmed by J.J. Abrams and Alfonso Cuaron. Uh, Nick has a new book out. It's a story collection called The Girlfriend Game, and it is available from Word Riot Press. It's great to have him here on the program, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. Here he is, folks. This is Nick and Tosca, and his new story collection, once again, is called The Girlfriend Game. I can't see you behind your uh, pop screen. I know. I'm, like, staring at it. You're kind of a blurry, you're, like, the figure of death. There but you're and you're slouching a little bit. You like to slouch. Yeah, I you know I do all my writing like lying in bed on my back with the laptop propped on my knees. I think it's my default thinking position. Wait, so, so you're an in bed writer? When I have to be, um, I. Uh, but I mean, as a matter of preference, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So. I, and you know, I've heard it said that you really shouldn't do that because it makes it difficult to sleep, right? Like because you're you're in the place where you're sort of working and supposed to be. Um, I don't find that. I find that the transition is pretty easy. Uh, in fact, the risk is, will I fall asleep while I'm writing? Uh, but, um, yeah, it's worked out. I've been doing it since you know, writing like that's so like 18 or 19. Well, no, that's uh, Woody Allen, Mark Twain. Really? Yeah. Both I are in know. bed writers. They, they wrote while, uh, you know, in repose. Well, good to know. Well, uh, I do know that, uh, Nabokov, uh, didn't write, but he ate lying down. He ate on his back, uh, with the plate on his stomach. That was his preferred style. Really? Yeah. And yeah. his name is Nabokov? Is that how you pronounce that? Um, there is a poem that he wrote to explain how to pronounce his name. Uh, the gawk of a loon at night prompts Nabokov to write. So you got to rhyme it with the gawk of. So Nabokov. Oh, well, there we go. I think I think there's a lot of people listening who just learned how to properly say his name for the first time. Yeah, I've heard it a lot of different ways. I think, you know, he's dead, so you're fine either way. Well, I always called him Nabokov because of Sting, you know, that song. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But what does I, he know? I, uh, I I think I called him, called him that for a while as well. Um, so, okay, you write lying down. I was going to say, too, that there were, are some stand-up writers. Uh, like yeah. Hemingway was a stand-up writer due to hemorrhoids. So it's nice. Interesting. To know. I didn't know that. Well, you know what? Nabokov was also a Nabokov. Nabokov was also a stand-up writer. Okay. I think with he had the note cards. He wrote all his novels on on little note cards, and he had them numbered. And he would stand at his desk. Um, I believe that is is the case, unless I'm confusing him with someone else, which I might be. I feel okay. So, are you writing longhand, or you have a laptop on? You said you have a laptop on your lap. It, you know, it's transitioned over the years. I used to write longhand um, for a certain time, uh, really pretentiously. I guess I used a ma uh, an electric typewriter that I found in my parents' attic. That was when I was in college. I got a typewriter uh, too for like five minutes, and I was like, "This is a pain <laughs> in the ass." <laughs> you you do feel like uh, you got to make every word count, you know, um, and and it's just fun to see sort of things appearing that you can't get rid of. Uh, but at a certain point, you know, that's it's impractical. Yeah, so much of my so much that. of my writing is deleting so much. Yeah, um, I uh, I think uh, Joyce Carol Oates said or maybe recently tweeted, you know, first drafts are hell and uh, final drafts are paradise. I I, I kind of disagree with that. Like the first draft of everything, I'm like, oh, that was, that was so much fun to write. That was awesome. Uh, and then I'm, you know, as as I go through drafts, I'm like, oh, yeah. oh. Uh, and so you're able to do that, though? You're able to I'm, say I'm picturing you in bed with the laptop just like and you can freely just go. Sometimes. I mean, uh, if you, you know, I, th I think every writer knows this. If you get excited about something, there's um, the experience of 
what you might call creative euphoria, you know, where you just go and you don't have to sort of pause and be like, well, what happens next? Because it just feels right. And, um, you know, some people call that flow. I feel like I saw a TED Talk where uh, some neuroscientist or something um, calls that flow. That's the state of, of total focus where you kind of uh, you lose track of time and your surroundings and you're just immersed um, it's never happened to me. <laughs> it's it's happened to me only a few times. You know, I, I, I feel like I feel like it happens, you know, maybe once a year. Um, and, and sometimes it happens for a whole novel. That's pretty rare. Uh, sometimes it happens for a short story. And then and then you're finished. and There's just a feeling of accomplishment. You know, like I just did it and now I'm done. And there wasn't any sort of like pulling my hair out. Whereas, you know, the other 11 months out of the year, it's just like, okay, what happens next? What happened? What? What? what why? Yeah. And you're sort of going back and, and rewriting instead of writing the next thing, which is fine, but it, 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 you lose the feeling of momentum. So where do you get, like, do you, can you pinpoint where you get your ideas from? Like, how does it, how does the um, genesis happen for you? Does it, is there a common, you know, common thread? I don't know that there is, and I think that um, that's an interesting question because I feel like writers or, or creatives of any kind often, you know, that's that's the question. Like, where do you get your ideas from? And I feel like the truly honest answer for most uh, writers or directors or whatever is like from other stuff. You know, like I watch another movie and it's really exciting, and then I want to make that movie, or like I read a book and I'm, I, you know, I want to write a book like that, uh, and then. Um, and then, and then you're inspired by something else, uh, and you're like, okay, that, that's how to do that. And the other thing, the other thing that happens is, uh, separate from that, sometimes I will read something or see something that's just a seed of an idea with nothing else connected. Like this is this is going back a long way. This to my first novel, Fires, uh, which I wrote eleven years ago now, I think. Um, that comes from. Uh, and I haven't thought about this for a long time. I read an article about, you know, forest fires or something. And there was a, a picture or a description of fire consuming the suburbs. Um, and I thought, you know, that's a, that's a scene that I want to see. That's a, uh, that's a thing <laughs> that's that a I want to write. image. Yeah. Like the, it's like the suburbs from like Close Encounters, you know, the, the all-American suburbs with the pool toys in the backyard or like the blow-up pool or whatever. And, and uh, you know, the the big wheel in the driveway and the this monster like primordial fire kind of thing is is just uh eating it um and i thought that was cool and uh, it that just stayed in my head for a little while and i didn't really know what it was um and then i read a book unrelatedly called the basement which is about that infamous murder case where you know, a, a woman was kind of entrusted to watch her neighbor's kid while they went away and she locked her in the basement and it was horrible and, and, you know, got neighborhood kids to like do bad things to her. And eventually she died. I mean, it's one of the most like horrific sort of murder cases. <laughs> so it's a beach read is what you're saying. Yeah. And, oh, and this one, it, it, the basement, I think the author is Kate Millett. I, I can't even remember now. Um, but uh, it's a, it's an interesting book and somehow those ideas m- you know, that idea connected to the fire idea. And um, I it, it, sometimes two ideas like that just connect and there's there's a, a conception, right? Like a moment of conception. And then you're like, oh, OK, here I go. All right. I can do this. And then, you know, you, you sit down and get the creative euphoria from that. 
Um, and it sounds like you were, I mean, do you work pretty quickly once you have your hooks in something? It seems like sometimes, it. sometimes, uh, ideally, ideally, particularly for the first draft. I, if I don't write a first draft pretty quickly, then I get bogged down and I either don't finish it or I lose track of what it is, you know, and I get to the end and I seem to be like writing something different from the thing that I started the only way to prevent that is to just have an incredibly detailed outline, which is basically a first draft. Do you uh, outline? I do now. You um, do? Okay. I, and then I know you screenwrite. Has that influenced your... Because I feel like whenever I dabble in that realm or I read about screenwriting, you know, you become a lot more aware of structure than you might if you're just working in especially long-form fiction, where it can feel like, ah, I can just kind of feel my way through this thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, it affects it in a big way. And I guess when I started writing fiction, which was I was young, you know, I was, well, I really started writing fiction when I was two or three years old. My mom recently found like, you know, little picture books of dinosaurs in a trunk in the attic. So I've been writing fiction in some form or another for a long, long time. But I think early on I thought, well, outlining is, you know, that takes the magic out of it or some shit like that. But... Once I started outlining, because you really, really have to do that for screenwriting, and I started screenwriting seriously in my, you know, in my mid twenties, um, I saw how useful it was and how it allowed for uh, momentum when you were writing, because you don't have to stop and think like, well, okay, I have an idea of what happens next, but I don't really know. I don't really know if it makes sense or if it's going to lead to the right place or just trip me up. If you have an outline that you have confidence in, it's just incredibly. Uh, helpful as a writer. Well, no, it's, I mean, I'm thinking for whatever reason about this building that's going up across the street. And it's like, once you have the frame, you know, yeah. then everything all of a sudden, the thing's like almost done. It, yeah. It seems similar. Or it's a lot more fun to do the cosmetic work if you've built the foundation. Or... Absolutely. If you know what the point of a scene is and you understand that it has to exist for this other thing to happen later that you are really excited about it happening, then it's much easier to write the scene. And and also, uh, you know, you don't have to write in order, right? Like sometimes, sometimes that can kind of break you free of of a creative roadblock. Like, well, I'm writing one scene, and the next scene seems like I have to put it in, but I don't really love the idea of writing. And then you can get kind of bogged down in the mud of that one scene. If you have an outline, and you trust that it's pretty much right then you can just skip ahead and write another scene that you're excited about. And then writing a connective tissue between those scenes is so much easier. Right. So I, I, I don't know at what point in my writing life I realized that, but that was a huge like epiphany. It's like a silly epiphany because it's so obvious. But I was like, oh, I don't have to go A, B, C, D. I can just like write them out of order. And then it's easier to write those connective tissue scenes too because you know exactly what they're connecting to. Right. So, well, and transitions, I feel like, can be one of the bigger challenges, like making seamless transitions, whether they're temporal or, you know, you're shifting settings or do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, like when you're writing fiction, I feel like that can be jarring if it's not done properly. Well, one of the basic, basic things that you learn writing scripts is get into the scene late and get out early. So, you know, people don't enter the room and say hi. Uh, unless there's a really good reason for them to do that and you know they don't they don't say goodbye on a phone conversation in a movie they just hang up and it's you wouldn't do that in real life but it, you have to do it in in tv or movies um and that affected the way i wrote fiction too 
putting only what's essential on the page. Right. And and the you know my book that is just out the story collection is um, it's stories from over ten years. Uh, you know some of those stories were written more than ten years ago, and some of them were written like a year or two ago. And when I look at them, I can see the difference in writing styles. Um, due due to the, your approach to structure, or just just broadly in part in part in part. Uh, I I think yeah I I can see stories. The the title story, the girlfriend game, was written a year or two ago, maybe maybe two years ago, when I had gotten into screenwriting. Uh, I was out here. I wasn't really working yet, but I had I had written a lot of of scripts, and that would be a much longer story if I hadn't if I had written it eight years ago. I mean, it would be like a, an eight thousand word story, and I don't remember what it is now. But it's like three thousand. You know, a character goes on a journey, and and things happen. It would have taken me much more time to tell that if I if I didn't learn the economy of structure and scenes. Wow! And so when you sit down to write an outline now, like what does it look like? And then and and also, how much deviation is there? Like you might write an outline, but then when you look at the finished product, is it vastly different in some cases or in some parts of the book than you originally envisioned, or is it pretty note for note? It's the first draft is very close, and then I'll go through and kind of reassess because. Sometimes in the outline, there are things that it seems like they'll obviously work. Like, okay, the big movement of this chapter is, you know, this character makes a decision and things change. And then when I read through the novel, it's like, or the manuscript or the story or whatever, it's like, well, yeah, he made a decision, but things don't really change that much. So it's not going to feel different in the next chapter because of what happened here. And I'll have to rethink a lot of things, you know, then, then the structure changes. Um, and, and, and at that point also, you know, you bring your trusted readers into it, you know, the, the people. How many do you have? I have maybe four or five. Um, uh, there's, there's a guy who helped me tremendously in my life, who was my high school teacher, my high school English teacher, who... I dedicated my first book to, um, and who's the reason that, you know, that, that I went to college, uh, and, or the, the college that I did. And where'd you go? I went to Yale, which was, you know, no, nobody from my school ever went there. It was like, I, I grew up in a farm town and I didn't really think that I thought I would go to like, you know, state school or something. Um, and this is just a guy who encouraged me and told me, you know, you, you can be a writer, like you can. You can, um, you can get out of here. You can, you can get out of this farm town. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, it was, uh, no, I mean, you know what the thing about it? And I, 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 this registers with me because I had, you know, there's, I think in any writer's life, there's probably a teacher somewhere who encouraged Yeah, and it can sound corny, but it's true. It has a huge yeah. impact when somebody early on sees it and nudges you. It's funny how, you know, you're an adolescent, you think you know better or whatever, you know, mode you're in when you're 15 years old. But when somebody who's an adult tells you you're good at something, you remember. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And th this guy was truly a mentor to me. Um, and he read, the first thing they did was he read a couple very short stories that I had written. And I, this was ninth or 10th grade. And he was like, well, these aren't good. And here's why, you know, you have a lot of talent, but, but this is why these stories don't work. I was like, he's an asshole, you know, and uh, he, but he was right. 
um, and he he encouraged me to keep writing. And I would I would show stories to him, um, and he would he would be like, "Yeah, this is you know you, you're getting better. You 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 can do this." Um, and he also uh, introduced me to like here's here's something that he did. I was uh, really. I really looked up to the director, Paul Thomas Anderson. I mean, this was, I was in high school when Boogie Nights had come out um, and Magnolia came out as well. And when Magnolia came out, this high school teacher, and again, this was a really small high school in a small town. uh, And I was on the high school newspaper, which was literally just some computer paper stapled (laughs) together from the printer. I mean, that's what, that was. Dot matrix. Yeah. It was like, it was really, uh, you know, low rent. Um, and he called, you know, this was in Maryland, and he called uh, Paul Thomas Anderson's publicist in L.A. and was like, yeah, I have a student on this high school newspaper who wants to interview him. And then Paul Thomas Anderson called our school's front office, and I, had, I like, went up to the office and, you know, had a phone conversation with Paul Thomas Anderson. And what did he say? He said uh, he said he was you know he was excited and proud of Magnolia and it was about to come out and it was a hard effort and I you know I honestly I don't really remember that much of what he said the interview I'm sure is available online somewhere because like in in you know the depths of the internet or on my laptop but he just kind of gave some advice about like how to put things out there and and were you I mean were you nervous were you speechless or were you able to conduct yourself. I I think I was I'm sure I was nervous. Uh, I think did I you know he was on the down. phone when when you walked up there or was yes. it just like here's the phone? And yes, then it... I, I did because you know what it was. He he called our office and like uh, they were like what huh what the, what are you talking about who who's Paul the, you know um, and then and then we had to call him back because you know the the office lady was like the <laughs> wrong nights. number um, and uh, so we called him back and I, I had a list of questions written down. And that was that was the first time I ever like encountered any of my artistic heroes. I was like, oh, it's a real person, you know, it's a real person who has a regular background and he's doing it like he's doing this stuff. You can do it. Um, And then, you know, so that 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 had a big impact on me. And so anyway, the point of that is he's one of my trusted readers still like I send him stuff. and Wait, Paul Thomas Anderson? No, 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 no. Oh. My high school teacher. Oh. No, uh, <laughs> it's like, yeah. that's a good trusted. <laughs> All right, yeah. Um, uh, so my high school teacher, uh, there's a there's a writer named Todd Grimson who wrote Brand New Cherry Flavor, who I, uh, you know, struck up a correspondence with over the internet a few years ago. And uh, Brand New Cherry Flavor is one of my favorite horror novels ever that I've ever read. Um, and I sent him stuff. Um, and, and there's a few other people, you know, I'll send stuff, uh, to, to my screenwriting partner, Ned Vizzini, who has been uh, on this program. Yes. Uh, yes. A very, very good interview. I, I listened to that one. That was cool. Um, and, uh, and there, there's like a, a few other people, but, uh, it's a small group. Um, and I think every writer has those people and, you know, you, you finish the draft and you have some confidence in it, but you know that things are fucked up here and there and, and some things just don't work. And then you send it to these people and they feel comfortable that they can tell you what sucks. Um, and you listen and, and sometimes you don't agree. Sometimes they're like looking for a different thing than the thing you're trying to write. And you can kind of get that. Uh, but most of the time, you know, most of the time they're, 
advice has something really substantial behind it that you better listen to. Uh, and if you if you can't take notes and edit, then in the fiction world, in the screenwriting world, you're you're dead. Right. Uh, I, you're just not going to go to the next level that you need to in terms of your skills. Um, and we have this thing in, you know, people in, in TV writing, when you get notes on a script or, or and in feature writing, when you get notes on a script, you the question is not like, how do I address these notes in a kind of like check off the box kind of way? It's like, what is the note behind the note? You know, they're, they're, they're bothered by something in this area of the script and they're kind of articulating what it is, but maybe not exactly. But you know that there's something wrong in that area and you, it's your job to figure out exactly what it is and exactly what needs to be fixed. And it's the same way in fiction. You know, you have to, you have to find out what is just like kind of fundamentally not fitting together in that part of the story. So when you're editing, is it mostly a cutting or is it mostly an adding? You know, I feel like some writers, it's like, yeah, my editing process, I'm just hacking. And then other people, it's like, you know, I build from what I've put down. It's both for sure. But I definitely cut, you know, at least 20% of anything, right? You know, you get done with the first draft of a novel and it might be like 80,000 words. Without a doubt, it's going to be like 50 or 60 something thousand after I'm done cutting. And it's weird because I, 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 I sometimes won't even cut any big scenes at all. I'll just like cut words in every sentence. And, you know, you think you need uh, adverbs and you don't, you, you don't. know, like 90 percent of the time you don't. So uh, and then uh, one last question about outlining, just because I feel like it's like this. There's a lot of resistance internally in writers, certainly in me. And it's such a useful thing. It's something I wish I could be better at. What does an outline that you write look like? Are we talking like a one-page thing, or do you have like a 25-page detailed outline? 20, 20 plus, yeah. Okay. Um, and they've gotten longer. In my early the, – the, the earliest stuff that I wrote, it would be like I have a rough outline in my head, you know, of the big moves that are going to happen in the story. And I'll start – I'll like write the first paragraph of the story. And then below that in the document or like on the margins of the page, if I'm writing longhand, I'll write like a couple bullet points of like, well, then he's going to go here and then he's going to go here and then so-and-so is going to kill so-and-so. And and then he reacts back. You know what I mean? Like seven bullet points or something. And that would be the outline. It's just like at the bottom of the screen. So you're chasing it as you write. Now it's for a script. It'll be a 20-page outline or a 20-page document. Uh, same with a novel. Um, yeah. And it, it'll be like bullet points or, you know, just like what you would imagine an outline would look like. Okay. And there, there'll be some kind of like weird notes to self in there that like other people wouldn't understand, <laughs> but mostly it's pretty clear. And if I gave you the outline, you know, you could write that. It would be different because it'd be you instead of me, but you could write that story in that structure. I sort of want to, I sort of want to read a book that just is entirely made up of outlines for novels. You know what I'm saying? Like novels that I've read. It'd be interesting to see. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. Um, the, uh, you know, the Marquis de Sade, there's one book, it might be like philosophy in the boudoir or something where, or or maybe it's a hundred and, you know, whatever nights, um, where, you know, the beginning of the book has like a narrative, right? It's like the noblemen go to the secluded chateau and begin to like torment the peasant girls or whatever. (laughs) And and there's like a novel with characters and then gradually, you know, the chapters become shorter and stuff. And then at the end, 
it just devolves into like a list of tortures, like his outline. <laughs> it's like, you know, you're actually watching a mind devolve into, he, he just reverted to his outline because he was only interested in the torture. So yeah, that, that's the book. But, uh, um, so we were talking before we, I think we started recording. You said that you were born in New Orleans. And yeah. I just heard you say that you went to high school in a farm town in Maryland. Yes. Yes. So where are you from? You're from Louisiana originally. Originally, I'm from New Orleans. Um, I was I was born in New Orleans in 1983. And around that time, um, New Orleans was the I think it was the murder capital of the country. You know, it, it gets traded back and forth it's like New Orleans, Baltimore, Detroit, whatever. Uh, but New Orleans was was a dangerous place to live. Um, and we lived in, you know, I, I think a pretty bad neighborhood in, uh, on something called St. Anne Street. Um, my parents lived in like a little apartment and, uh, it, you know, it, it was just dangerous. Um, I remember our car being stolen. At, this is one of my earliest memories. The car was stolen as like a threat to my parents from the neighbors who were angry at them. And, and the car was thrown. It was recovered from the Bayou St. John, which I think is not a, a bayou. It's like a reservoir or something. Uh, and I just remember the car being pulled out of the bayou like a dinosaur, you know, with with mud all over it, um, and the mud dried and caked, and it looked like scales. And I remember like trying. I'm to thinking. Pick I'm off. thinking of uh, what is it called? Empire Strikes Back when Luke uses the force uh, to raise the X-wing fighter. Out isn't of that it. the first one? I think that's the first one. Oh, it is. Okay. I'm not sure. I might be wrong. They're in the Dagobah I'm, system in the in the swamp. Yeah, yeah. I think that's the first one. But I, I'm not. You know, I, I could be totally embarrassing myself. I'm not really a Star Wars. <laughs> geek i like it but so it's funny to hear you say that about new orleans though because uh my folks are from louisiana and my yeah. i have a cousin my god uh my godfather is from new orleans and mm -hmm. his son my cousin i want to say he got his bike stolen at knife point like, oh stuff yeah stuff happens there yeah. you know like well it i mean it was a it was a dangerous place then i think the police force was you know like a gang of criminals basically um, and I, I remember hearing stories even as a little kid, because remember I was like four years old at this time. Like I remember hearing stories of my, like my parents talking, about, Oh, you know, they found a woman with her head cut off like a couple blocks over or something. And, uh, you know, it was like somebody like dragged out of his car. It was like a middle-class guy. who was just, like dragged out of his car and like beaten up by the police. Um, and you know, I, I, my memories of her are like of going to a, a, little daycare there and like just wandering out and i remember going to the uh, i think audubon park and they're like ducks with like deformed bills you know <laughs> like feeding them and they couldn't eat cause so it's like all starting it's bills. all starting it was, to make sense now this this horror yeah. like the, the you know like. yeah so 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 it's interesting actually because i don't remember how old i was either four or five when we moved out of new orleans and we moved to maryland uh and we moved to a little place called thermont maryland where um, it's like way out in the woods, and it's actually the headquarters of the Maryland KKK, which is, you know, it's not a very big organization, but it's still like <laughs> kind of a weird place, very beautiful country, um, and uh, but but still kind of a weird place. And then after a year there, we moved to the suburbs in Maryland. And then I grew up in, you know, this, it, it was like, it's a town that's like built around some railroad tracks and there's lots of farms. What's it uh, called? It's called uh, Brunswick. Well, the town is Brunswick. We lived in a place called Rosemont, which is right outside of it. Uh, and it's, you know, it's, it, 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 there's no sidewalks, but it's like almost the suburbs. It's like kind of country suburbs there. You know, there's a field across the street from the front of our house where there were horses and behind the house, there was a fence. And behind that, there was um, 
cornfields uh, and like rabbit hutches that these people had. Like my dog got out one day and like ate the rabbits and you know that kind of thing. Uh, but it was it was pretty like you know n- normal suburban. Uh, you know the grass is green and the, there's an apple tree in the yard and it's beautiful. I mean Maryland, the, the countryside in Maryland. I've hiked through there. It's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it's nice, um, and we were right by the Potomac River uh, near Harpersburg, Virginia, which is where John Brown raided. Sure, um, it's all nice country, and it was like a pretty normal thing. But I feel like when I look back at my childhood, you know, there's this like weird gothic burst of like half remembered stuff from New Orleans of like just weird shit, uh, and then you know the suburbs um, or almost suburbs. And uh, I don't know. I, I feel like that um, that informs the things I write about a lot. I was just uh, going to say, I mean, you can kind of see it. Yeah. Just like, you know, animals. And you mentioned your dog attacking. And I was, yeah. reading, I was reading the interview you did with Ken Bauman. And... Yeah, that's actually a separate dog attack that I talked Those are two different dogs. Yeah. Um, and and, and, uh, and deformed duck bills. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, that's that interview actually made me remember the deformed duck bills. Um, that's... Uh, yeah, that happened. Uh, but but now that I think about it, there were there were three different dog attacks, or, or maybe more. Like there was one dog that like bit me in the face when I was a little kid, and I got rid of it. And then another dog that was like the, the dog was named Einstein, um, and and you know that dog ate the neighbor's rabbits and also bit the cleaning lady's daughter, and it was like uh, you know. Uh, then there was the other dog, and it like attacked the neighbor's dogs and ate one of them, and it was just like, you know. <laughs> and I menace. love dogs. I love dogs. Um, but uh, but it, it, bad things do happen to dogs in my books in my stories. Yeah. So well, I mean, I who was I just talking to? I might have been talking to somebody on this show really recently about this about how we can tolerate a lot more uh, violence when it involves humans Mm -hmm. on screen than we can when it involves, at least for me, like Mm -hmm. you touch a dog in a movie and I, I can't even look. Oh yeah. You, you you get, um, you get notes much more so on, on if you put in a TV script, like an animal's in trouble, you know, you can chop somebody in half with a sword (laughs) and they're like, well, can there be more stakes, you know? (laughs) But, but if you have like a dog with a gun to its head, that's not good. Um, but it's interesting, actually, there, there's the reverse can be true sometimes if you, for whatever reason, don't like there's resistance, like putting a child in danger in a script, uh, which there often is, uh, you can do it with a dog. You can do it with a dog. And, uh, and that's, you know, you, you have like, like Independence Day or something like you know, the dog, will they save the dog? Will they go back and get the dog? You couldn't really do that with a little kid in that movie. It's just like too dark. Right. Uh, but they'll do it with the dog. My, uh, I'm now remembering like the, like my, might've been my senior thesis. I went to film school and I made a, uh, student film. Like imagine the most horrible student film you've ever seen. That's like supposed to be a horror movie, mm-hmm. but everyone laughed at when <laughs> I screened it. <laughs> I, I, it I was about, a, it was about a woman or a girl who kidnapped her ex-boyfriend's dog and then put him in a bag and threw him into a lake. <laughs> that was part of it. So there was like these slow motion shots of this girl whirling around. <laughs> it's very embarrassing. Do you still you. have it? Uh, I don't, it's somewhere, I think in my parents' attic, but yeah. I, I'm <laughs> terrified to look at it, you know? Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. I, I, uh, I have similar, there's a couple short films that I made 
that I don't know where they are. There's there's two that I made on like literally like you know handheld home video cam when I was a teenager that I hope are gone. I mean they're they're bad. Um, and then there's one that I made in college that was shot on sixty millimeter that was like an interview with Ted Bundy in prison, but Ted Bundy was played by Ken Doll, so it was kind of a ripoff <laughs> of that Todd Solon's Karen Carpenter thing with right. the bar bean. Sure, yeah. Uh, and that was fun. Or was that whether... Todd Solon's, or was that... Uh, I'm trying to think of what his oh, name is. Oh, Todd Haynes. Todd, Todd Haynes, Haynes. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're right, you're right. Um, yeah, it was. It, which I've never seen that thing, but I'd heard about it, uh, and I think I, I just ripped it off. You know, it was this, like, five-minute, can we shoot something on 60 millimeter? Um, I wish I could find that, but I think that's I think that's gone. Well, one day, you yeah, know, for your archives. Yeah, yeah, maybe maybe I'll do it again. You know, on my iPhone, <laughs> I'll just get a Kindle. So, were you an only child? Psychologically, I was, uh, but um, because I, m- my brother John Marco, it was born when I was twelve. So I was basically raised. You know, by that time, you're in your head, you're an only child, right? Uh, but um, yeah, so I so I have a much younger brother. He's in college now. And, uh, yeah. You know, so what, think, is, what is that like? I mean, you didn't obviously get to really know him until relatively recently. Yeah. I, well, you know, the last couple of years, like the first time that we sort of really like talked to each other as adults. Um, you know, before that, it, it's, it's, you, it's not like having a sibling who's your age where you share all the same experiences. Uh, and it's weird because, you know, I was, I was gone. I went to college. Um, he was six. Yeah. Just around the time he was starting to be like you know, communicate and, uh, really on a, on a sort of conversational level. I actually, I don't know if I don't remember anything about child development, maybe, <laughs> maybe. but, uh, but you know, I, so I, I wasn't around and then I moved to New York. Um, so I talked to him on the phone regularly, you know, and have, uh, ever since I, I go home and visit my family and stuff, but, um, and what are your and your I want to say your dad we've talked before or I've read something but your dad's a musician. Yeah, my dad's a composer. Okay. Um he's uh yeah, he's a, he's a composer of uh like crazy music, you know, like What do, uh, what do you mean crazy? Well, I mean like like atonal kind of like experimental stuff. Um you know, he 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 likes uh John Cage and Henry Cowell and uh Mort Sabotnik and Roger Reynolds and um, I've heard of like one guys. of those. <laughs> yeah, you know, they're uh, it's like he, he that, that's what he does, huh. um, and he's a he's a sometimes he is a professor also. But I, you know, I think he. He's... So what, did you grow up in like a bohemian environment? No, I, I wouldn't say that. Um, uh, the upstairs of our house was a studio, was his music studio, and, well, half his music studio and half like the TV and all the DVDs and stuff. But it was just like one big open space in the house. We we. We lived in this, this is in Maryland. We lived in this old house from like 1910 or 1920. It's not very big. And the attic was just like a rack when we moved in. So he converted it to the studio and, and the place where we watch DVDs. Um, but my mom's is, my mom is a, uh, an elementary school teacher. Um, and we had a, I had, a, I had a pretty normal childhood. You know, my parents are, are good parents. They're nice people. But you, I mean, having like, you know, my parents are not artistic. And so I'm, I'm imagining that as you veered off into like a writerly uh, track that at least your dad must have understood. Maybe. Oh, yeah, totally. Totally. In fact, uh, you know, after college, I, I had a job. I got this job off Craigslist where I was first an assistant and then an associate at a hedge fund in New York. You know, it was like a real job. And when I got the job and I told my parents because because it looked like I would like leave college and just be, you know, an assistant of a publishing house or something, just make nothing. 
And when I got the job, my parents, both of them were, were like, well, will you be able to write? Are you sure you should take this job? What? You know, which is great. Most parents would be like, take the job at the hedge fund and, you know. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and uh, it is it is true that all throughout my childhood, all throughout my childhood, I would just hear, you know, it would be like there was a, a, a violent seance going on upstairs because I would hear <laughs> the voices. You know, he would incorporate like voices and stuff into his music. He would record his friends like saying stuff or, you know, just people. And then he would manipulate them. And it would and, and I guess to, you know, to manipulate a piece of audio, of course, he's got to play it over and over and over again. So I'd hear these like repetitive, crazy voices like chanting and yammering from upstairs and music and, and like weird distortion effects and uh, see but the, I like this visual and I like the idea that your dad is an artist who has uh, perhaps an unorthodox or unique vision and has pursued it. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. It's uh it was really encouraging to me. I mean that So when I was little um I think and I only have vague memories of this. I think my dad encouraged me to, you know, learn to play music and stuff and Do you play? Oh, no. It, it became very clear, I think, at a young age. I just have no ear for music. I can't. I mean, I love music, but I can't. I can't tell you what note is what. I can't identify a chord. I don't even really know what a lot of those terms. It's just like. And and I had two years of piano lessons in elementary school. And I was, you know, it's like basic, basic competence. Uh, and then one day I was like, oh, I don't feel like going. Can I just skip this week? And I just never went again. But I think you know, they recognized also early on that I was interested in writing or storytelling because, you know, I was mentioning my mom found like an old novel or something in the attic. You know, I was, I, I, as a little kid, I remember in New Orleans, like drawing on pieces of just white paper, drawing dinosaurs fighting and all this. <laughs> and then having my dad, um, before I could write, you know, write the, the words and word bubbles. And 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 my dad was always really encouraging of that, and I think it, he was thrilled, you know, that I uh, had a, an artistic aptitude or inclination. Well, and I think it's a, you know, I'm a parent now, so it's not so much about it's really about recognizing what your child gets excited by, and you have to have an eye for it. Yeah. Sometimes you, I mean, it sounds like your parents had a, a pretty good sensitivity to it, but you just got to kind of nudge them because I feel like. You know, it, it always backfires if you try to assert your will. Like, for instance, the piano lessons. It's either going to take or it's not. Yeah. Even if, yeah. you know, it's somewhere in your genetic code. And um, Well, I, I'm tremendously grateful to my parents for being so sort of nurturing. And, it, you know, people people resent um, – people who get into, like, the literary world or get books published or, or movies made or whatever through nepotism. You know, it's like the I'm the son of a famous director and all this. Uh, that's one huge advantage. But like another huge kind of secret advantage, even if you don't have any connections, it's just parents who encourage you to do that stuff. I, mean, I can't imagine what I'd be now if my parents were just like not – were just like, no, you can't do that. That's not – that's not a life. That's can't not make, a living. make a living. Right. And, and when I was growing up, I mean it was just like – it wasn't weird that my dad was a composer. It wasn't weird that he was doing crazy music upstairs. Uh, it was just normal. And so I didn't recognize the sort of uniqueness of it. And now I do. Now I recognize that it must have been really hard for him to make a living, you know, and to dedicate his whole life to doing something that doesn't really promise, you know, riches or whatever. I mean, he 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 followed his dream. He's, That's he, great. He's still doing what he what he loves. That's and, what I was alluding to earlier, because like I. 
Uh, you know, it makes me think of college professors I had. I went to film school at Colorado, uh, which is like where Matt and Trey went. They're like the yeah. most famous graduates. But the, the, the entire curriculum there is based around Stan Brakhage and experimental mm -hmm. film. At least when I was there, that was the case. And it's those kinds of filmmakers who are literally like hunched over their desk in their like attic or whatever, painting on celluloid. Right. And pursuing this like extremely weird vision, but right. doing it for a lifetime. Like there's some great nobility in that, I think. Absolutely. Absolutely. I don't, you know, it's, I, I don't make any money from my fiction. Do you know what I mean? Like not I many write, pe not many people do. <laughs> yeah. It's, you know, I, I, I write fiction be, and I just won't stop, you know, but, but I don't really expect to ever like make a living doing that. Um, and I, it's just incredibly, incredibly fortunate that, uh, you know, that I was able to transition along with my, my right, my screenwriting partner, Ned, uh, into, into screenwriting because you can make a living doing that. And so, you know, it's up and down and everything, but, um, just, I, I I'll never stop being ridiculously grateful that that's even a, a, an opportunity. Like sure. that's even an avenue. Well, I want to get there. Uh, I want to talk about like how you entered because I think uh, people will be interested to know like how that happened. But I want to start, uh, or before we get there, I want to talk about Yale mm. uh, because that transition is equally fascinating to me. Going from like small town Maryland, farm town Maryland, um, you know, nurturing parents, nurturing teacher, the KKK, <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> vicious dogs. To be clear, you know, I didn't have any face-to-face -face encounters. With uh, yeah, it yeah. was just like a, a kind of odd vibe. Sure. And, yeah. And I'm from Indiana. There was some yeah. of that down South and you know, it's, yeah. it's there. So, um, but you get to Yale, like, was that a, was that a difficult transition coming from where you came from? Did you seamlessly? Yeah, yeah, it was. And, you know, I thought recently, I, not really, but at some point I was like, well, no matter what I do in my professional life, I may never again experience the feeling of like, holy shit, my life is going to change. Like when I got when I got the acceptance letter, it was, which was just like such a shot in the dark. Um, and I, you know, I was 16 years old. I was just like, you were 16 when you got in. Yeah. Be, because I, I applied as a junior in high school because I had found a loophole that was like, I, they, and they changed it the year after that I had enough credit to graduate. Um, so I just, you know, I give it a shot. And, and what helped was that high, my high school teacher wrote me like a seven page recommendation that was just like the most, you know, like he understood that I wasn't going to get in otherwise probably that the odds were hugely stacked against me. And he just wrote this, this recommendation letter that was like, Over you the know, top. They, they were probably like, Whoa, we, we should probably, you know, take a look at this. Um, and, uh, but, but yeah, it was, it was a tough transition because I didn't, I, I just, I didn't know, I didn't know anything about like worlds like that. I just didn't. And, and, to, you know, to make it worse, this was so I was a year younger than most people because I had graduated a year early and I a couple things happened. Um, I broke up with my long term girlfriend when I went like, you know, a month or two after I went to, to college and then she started dating my best friend from high school. So I was like, you know, in a, in a, kind of a foul <laughs> mood. Um, and then uh, I had so in high school, a couple of times my lungs had collapsed and Jesus. um that's Why? it's called a spontaneous pneumothorax and it as the doctors explained it to me then you know this was like 12 13 years ago um 14 14 years ago uh that it just happens sometimes to 
tall, skinny, young guys. Um, it just spontaneously. It can happen when you're playing football. It can happen when you're you know just walking down the street. It happened to me when I was asleep. I would wake up in the morning and like it, I'd have like a pain in my back. Um, and so I went to the hospital, and it, they would say like, "Oh, it's like a five percent or a ten percent pneumothorax. You know, your your lung has collapsed that much." And so they put you on oxygen or something, just an oxygen mask, and you'd stay in the hospital for a day or something, and you'd be fine. You know, it just heals itself. Then when I was in college, um, a few months into it, I woke up, you know, one morning, and, and there was really a lot of pain in, in my back and, like, kind of pressure, uh, which is just what it feels like. It's a little hard to breathe. So I walked myself to the health clinic or whatever it was, and uh, they were like, okay— this is this is bigger. It's like twenty five percent collapse. So you're, you're just significant collapse of your lung, and it was a different side than the one before. So that means, in theory, you, both lungs are prone to collapse. So in theory, you know, both your lungs could collapse spontaneously at the same time. In which case, you're dead. So, <laughs> oh, so I, you know, the solution is you have surgery on one lung, and they scar it up to the chest wall so that it won't. Uh, it won't collapse spontaneously. Um, but before they do that, you know, right there while you're sort of in the doctor's office, they got to uh, re-expand the lung or, or, you know, fuck with it to make sure it doesn't get worse. So they, they cut open my – they cut a little hole in my chest. They gave me a local anesthetic. I was totally conscious. Um, they cut a little hole in the chest, and then they take a long plastic tube – I'm picturing uh, bellows, but, you know. They, so, uh, you know, the magician trick where the scarves come out of the sleeve and they just keep coming and coming and coming. It seems like yeah. they'll never stop. This is like the reverse of that. They take this long plastic tube and they stick it in your chest and they start feeding it in slowly into the little slot that they've sliced in your chest. And it's just going in and in and in and snaking all the way around your lung into the open space that's been left by the collapse. And it just keeps going in and you're like, how much fucking tube can they put in my chest and you can feel it like people are people are squirming people are squirming as they hear this (laughs) yeah i'm i you know i can i'll never forget that feeling and 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 then then the lung you know it's attached to a valve that tube a heimlich valve they call it and slowly the lung re-expands and that is the most painful feeling i've ever felt in my life because any any slight intake of breath is just like searing pain in your chest and the doctor didn't seem to think it should be that painful i was like give me pain pills and he was like, no, no, we can't, no. I was like, what the, f- what is going on? <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I remember uh, calling my parents then, you know, telling them. And, they, of course, they were in another state. They were freaked out and, uh, like, panicking. Uh, but uh, so that's just a temporary stopgap measure, that valve. And then I had surgery a couple of days later where they, they open up the chest. They scar the lung to the chest wall because normally it's not attached. It just sticks there, like, via suction like a right. you know, a cup on a table right and so they did that and you know i actually i remember the doctor said to me yeah you know in a week you'll be able to play football fucking insane like they always <laughs> say that stuff to you right but uh no it, it it took like two weeks for them to even be able to like take the tubes out of my chest they're stuck in the hospital they're waiting for the lung to re- re-expand so it's very depressed you know it was it's like not what where you want to be in your first semester yeah. at college how are you going to take bong hits with a lung like that that's yeah terrible. yeah oh yeah well that's a whole other thing you know i didn't <laughs> I, I, I um i uh uh I, so i i was it was i was in a dark place i mean i was depressed um and it took a long time to to recover uh so so my first year of college was just like all right you know it was dark um 
And then eventually... How did you do in school? Did you do okay? I did fine. Okay. It was, it, it was odd because he, he, I was a, a liberal arts major, and it's just not that hard. Right. It's just not. You right. know, you just... Compared you, to, like, physics or, you know, like these people who yeah. are, like, pre-med, it's a much easier curriculum. You read a book, and then you write uh, stuff about it in the rough framework of, like, some, you know, school of theory that's been presented to you, and you, you get a, an A-, minus. Right. you know? Um, and... Uh, I was a film studies major, actually, be- but it was because the film studies department was only like – they only had like 25 students or something, so they're desperate for students. And I wanted to be um, an English major, but as a film studies major, I did I wouldn't have to take the, the shitty English classes I didn't want to take, and I could take the ones I did and count them toward the film studies major. So it seemed like a great deal. Sure. So I did that. I was writing papers. Um, I did – yeah, I did fine in school. Eventually, I – took off a year uh, because because I graduated high school early, so it just evened out. So I spent three years in high school, five years in college. Um, and the whole time I was uh, I was writing fiction. Um, and wait, I feel like I'm getting away from the question now. What was this even in response I don't know, to? just adjusting. It, it, it means part of this. This is oh, your yeah. adjustment. But I mean, like, socially, was there an adjustment? It seems like you were relatively... You didn't fuck around as much as a lot of college students. No? Oh, I did. I did eventually. I okay. Did, yeah. Um, I uh, makes me feel better. You know, I, I've never smoked a lot of pot because, in part, because of my lungs. Yeah. Um, but there was there, like I just didn't have to. You didn't have to. You don't have to work that hard as a as a as a liberal arts major, which is embarrassing to say. I mean, yeah. it, it's it's embarrassing. I wish I had taken like I wish I'd you know pushed myself more. Me too. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, but I did uh, I did learn that I wanted to be a fiction writer. That's what I learned in college. Uh, well, what do you, can, do you know why? I mean, obviously you were heading in that direction to begin with. But was there like a book that you read, or was there a moment that you can point to where you're like, "That's when I made the decision"? Like, yeah, uh, yes, actually, um, uh, that's that's a very very good question. I uh, after the lung thing, you know, I was depressed for a long time and. Uh, you know, you, you, your body heals, but like things are still out of whack and you know, you're just, you don't feel right. Um, and that was in the fall that that happened in the spring. I was still, uh, you know, in, in kind of a dark place and I sat down, I like had an idea for a novel and I sat down and I, I just started writing. And this was one of those moments of flow, you know, of, of the euphoria, where it was like over 11 days, you know, I wrote like a 50 or 60,000 word novel. It was just like Jesus. nonstop. And was there I, mania? I mean, is there mania? Yeah, totally. Like totally. that. And there there wasn't, uh, there was no outline. You know, it was very rough and I was making it up as I went along. Uh, and that book has never been published. Um, and I think it could be, you know, I, I, I got, uh, or it could have been. I mean, I, I got my first agent off of that novel. Um, and, uh, but, you know, it was just, it was like 10 or 11 days of such euphoria and it, it shook shook me out of things a little bit, and I was I was like, okay, I can do that because uh, because I had written a couple novels like as a teenager, you know, some finished, some unfinished, but at, at a certain point, I was like, I don't think I'll ever do this again, you know, I don't know, I, I'll go, I'll go, um, I'll try to make films or I'll work in publishing or something. Uh, I was just like, I'm not going to be a novelist. And then that changed everything. When I sat down and wrote that, I was like, okay, 
I should always be writing fiction because it makes me feel this good when it's on. Um, and I felt like I it, it was just so cathartic. So that is that is the thing. That what changed. was the book about? The book was about the book was about um, a small town. It, it was like a, a kid, a kid in high school, and you know. You had a there, collapsed lung. <laughs> there was a, a figure that was like coming out of the darkness and and taking kids from this town and like cutting them in half and leaving leaving their bodies around. And it was it was like you know one summer in this town as things went from kind of idyllic to just just like you know Lynchian for lack of a better word, although that wasn't kind of consciously what it was supposed to be. But it was just uh, it was like kind of nightmarish and i just felt like such a surge while writing it um and and you know that that's what kind of changed the course of my creative life okay so then uh socially at yale meeting people like is there a world is there there like a war like is there classism is there a sense of that when you enter into one of those schools and you yes. don't necessarily come from like some tony prep school yes and absolutely you um, felt it oh yeah i mean look i, I made good friends uh but um but there, yes there there is that i remember the first you know month or so one of my the, uh suite mates you know one of the other people in the suite his dad came in and he had and with him he had a sherpa he just had, a, you know, because he had he had been climbing, and he had his Sherpa with him here oh in, in New Haven, um, and stuff like that. And it was like, <laughs> you know, okay, this is a different world. Um, and uh, yeah, but there there were, you know, my my the guy who was in the room next to me was, um, you know, his parents were immigrants from Haiti. There there, there is diversity uh, more than there used to be. I think to I think so. The credit yeah. of a lot of those schools have done a better job of yeah. Yeah, but there's there's also there's in terms of classism, it, it, it's classism, but it's just a kind of the same cliquishness that you would find in different forms at every single school where where like most of the people come from New York or L.A. and they went to Harvard Westlake or they went to, you know, Dalton or whatever in New York. And like they know each other and they speak the same language and like, you know, their friends' dads are famous novelists and so they would have sleepovers there. And it's just like <laughs> you're just not part of that world unless you kind of like insinuate yourself. And I didn't I didn't I didn't do that really. I didn't understand to do, I should have done it more. I was gonna you know? say, get in on those slumber yeah. parties. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I I, it, I didn't I just didn't understand that you kind of have to like pay your dues and like be part of the the club to be part of the club, you know. Like I remember, um, there's a literary magazine, and I I remember freshman or sophomore year, I went to some reading that was like sponsored by the literary magazine early on, and uh, and you know people read their stuff, and I was, okay, fine, you know, cool. And then a little bit later, I went to um, some committee where they would the literary magazine would would you know a selection committee for like stuff they would publish in a literary magazine, which was kind of a, you know, prestigious thing. And the submissions were anonymous, but, uh, the submissions, but then you would look at the submissions as submissions were all p- things people had read at that reading before. So you could tell like, what was your friend's poem? And so, and I was, and, and they just like selected their friend's poems. I was like, 
fuck this. <laughs> and I just never, I was just like bitter and, and I never sort of tried to be a part of it again. Um, and I think I regretted that later for sure. Uh, that's, I mean, you have to, if you want to go into this line of work, you have to be willing to tolerate a certain. Yeah. 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 I mean, it, it is, it is what it is, you know, but, uh, well, so speaking of tolerating and, uh, you know, the networking side of things and the paying of dues, um, talk about how you got into TV writing, because one of the epiphanies that you had that I think a lot of fiction writers don't necessarily have because of a lack of practical good sense like i'm raising my hand here mm. is that just you had this understanding that it would be very difficult to make a living at it mm. and i think so many fiction writers uh, aspiring or working just kind of operate with this blind faith or like this hope that like i'm going to be the one who does it and yeah. the statistics are i mean increasingly so daunting yeah. so you looked at the field and said, well, you can make a living as a TV writer and a, and a screenwriter, but that that itself is really difficult. I know that as well. Like, it's extremely difficult yeah. to get, your, get on that merry-go-round because it does pay. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, I, the, the trajectory toward that for me started in, in college, I guess, when I turned on the TV one day and there was an episode of The Shield on, which I'd never seen before. I'd seen the posters where I was like, is that Bruce Willis? But he like got wider or what's the deal? <laughs> um, and it was season four of The Shield, episode five, I think, where uh, there's an incredible performance by Anthony Anderson, you know, this the amazing actor who was in you know, like Kangaroo Jack. That was the only thing I'd seen him in. And he... You know, he just uh, uh, he has this horrifying scene where he kills somebody and then he like puts his boot on a cop's head. And he said and I was like and it's just such a well-written, powerful scene. And I was like, they're doing this on TV. And then and then I want, you know, I watched the rest of that season on TV and then I got the DVDs. and I, I watched all the DVDs in a couple of nights. I, I was late for a test, you know, and I woke up the next like at at one in the afternoon. I had some like some tests and there were all these missed phone calls from like my girlfriend and from like the professor. <laughs> I was like, man, uh, well, I don't, I don't regret watching, you know? Um, and, and so the shield was the show that made me want to write TV. And then I had no idea how you do that. No idea whatsoever. And I never really pursued it. Um, and then years later in New York, uh, I, you know, I'd been friends with Ned Vizzini for a long time. And, but we had never written anything together or anything like that. And then, you know, one one morning I was going to have lunch with him uh, at my office at work. And I had had this like one sentence, just like the vaguest like seed of an idea. Like, wouldn't it be cool if that morning and we started talking like, hey, we should we should write a TV show together. You know, like because because both of us, he's a much more successful novelist in terms of making a living off it than, than I am. But, you know, both of us kind of see the writing the writing on the wall um and uh and and see the attractiveness of like tv as a as a as an artistic medium it's exciting right now yeah exactly and and so we just you know i i pitched him this like one sentence and we started riffing on it and right there at the table we came up with characters that well let, let's let's just do it let's write us back and so we wrote you know he would he would come over to my house we would eat all this food you know after i got off work and we, it took us a couple months um, to write a, a first draft of this thing. And then at the same time, we were just watching TV. We were watching pilots of shows. We, you know, we watched Twin Peaks and The Shield, um, all these shows, Lost. 
and, and just diagram them, like figure out what makes this stuff work. Because, you know, we, we neither said any education and we weren't like huge TV watchers as kids, you know, just the normal thing. And so we, we got, um, we got uh, an agent to look at it uh, from, you know, Ned's agency that had represented his book. Uh, we, it's kind of a funny story, which was turned into a movie or it hadn't been at that time, but it was going to be. And, you know, an agent got in touch with us and said, hey, this is good, but it, it doesn't do all the things it needs to do. You should write another one and make it like a two-part pilot. So we wrote another one, spent another couple months. And at the same time, we're still studying scripts, studying, studying pilots, studying scripts, just trying to teach ourselves. And, you know, probably two years passed like that, where we made a couple trips to L.A., you know, we met with that agent and, and a, uh, that, that, that was an agent named Lauren Whitney, who said William Morris, a wonderful agent. And she was encouraging. But but it's also clear to us, like, OK, you're not in L.A. You're not really going to be able to do this. So, you know, I uh, after the financial crash in 2008, um, I was laid off in 2009 from that like cushy job I'd had for four ish years. Um, and uh, we, we came out here. And we we came out for it was just going to be three months, and it turned into like let's just stay. Um, and we when we got out here, we just we cold called people, uh, we emailed people, um, and just tried to get people to meet with us and talk to us uh, and give us advice. Um, and one of the people that we got in touch with was this guy, uh, Chick Eglay. He goes by the, you know, his credit is, is Charles Eglay. And he's written on, like, every great show ever. And he wrote that episode of The Shield, I think. I, I knew he wrote for the season. I'm pretty sure he wrote that episode that I saw that made me want to write TV. And so he, he was nice. He was on The Walking Dead at the time. It was just starting up. It hadn't been on the air. And he met with us and he gave us advice and, you know, and there were a couple other people like that. Um, and so we, we were, you know, banging on more scripts and, um, and, and samples and stuff and trying to get meetings. And it took like a, it took like a year and a half, which is, is not that long. Yeah. I mean, TV, it's not long at all. Uh, because the normal trajectory is you become an assistant on a show, you're getting coffee, you're a PA, you do a couple of assistant jobs. Somebody gives you a break and lets you write a script for a show. Then, you know, you get promoted. It's just like a long process. Sure, yeah. And and we had we just came at it sideways. And, uh, you know, and Ned's, the movie of Ned's book had come out around that time. Um, which, and, which definitely helps. Yeah, it, it helped that that was, the, that was the year that we came out here sure, a lot. Sure, uh, And, um, you know, and and... And we got managers who helped us a lot, really, really, really good managers who helped us. And, um, a couple, you know, some other agents started working for us at William Morris and, and as a, as a team that were just, we just, we're very fortunate. And, uh, and we ended up, you know, we, we wrote for the show Teen Wolf, uh, which is still going on MTV. That was our first job. Uh, and that was the kind of thing where we had managed to get a meeting with the showrunner, like, the first year we came out here for the first season of that show because we read the pilot script and we we thought it was fantastic. We we were really excited about it, so we just pulled in every every favor we could to just get in the room with him. Um, and he he was great. He didn't hire us. Uh, and then a year later, when they got renewed for season two, we got a call like, "Hey, you guys want to come 
worked for Teen Wolf. Well, so I want to say Ned told me he like went and stood in line at Comic Con. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. He uh, he went at Comic Con and he ran into. I think I think they had just re- probably renewed it for season two or were about to, so they you know had in, in mind that uh, they were going to need staff. And he ran into one of the executives from MTV who was like, oh, why are you waiting in line? And then a couple of weeks after that, without any kind of second meeting, we just got a call like, hey, uh, you know, they, they remember you from last year. Come, uh, you come home? Come come right for the show? So, yes. uh, yeah, absolutely. That was, that was our first job. And then after that, um, we went on the show Last Resort, which was uh, run by Sean Ryan, who created The Shield. So that was a huge, huge moment for me. You know, you get to be in a room with with him. Like that was that was a great experience too. Uh, that show was canceled, unfortunately. Um, so you know, then now we're on a, a show called Believe, which is going to be on NBC next year. It's um, uh, it was created by Mark Friedman and Alfonso Caron, the guy who directed you know Children of Men and Gravity. And J.J. Uh, Abrams is producing, so it's it, it's, it's a good package. Yeah, it's it's intense, um, and uh, we're excited. We're excited about it. Wow. Well, it's uh, it's been so fascinating. I mean, you've done a lot in a short amount of time. It feels like, and I congratulate you on the new book. Best of luck with the new show, and thank you so much for taking an hour. I appreciate it. Thank you, Brad. Okay, guys, there you go. That's the show. That is Nick and Tosca. I hope you enjoyed that. Be sure to go get Nick's new story collection. It's called The Girlfriend Game. It's available now from Word Riot Press. You can find Nick online at brothersist.blogspot.com. He's also on the Twitter at Nick and Tosca. Thanks to Kill Rockstars, as always, for all the good music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. And uh, don't forget to get the app, the free official Other People app. It is the, uh, available now for your iPhone, iPad, iPod Touch, or Android device. It's the best and most elegant way to listen to this program. New episodes automatically upload to the app. You can download episodes to listen to offline. You can favorite your favorite episodes, and you can listen to the full archives and premium content as well, all via the app. So please go get that if you haven't done it already. It's free. Otherwise, uh, moral ambiguity, mixed feelings, cosmic uh, insignificance, cosmic significance. What does it all mean? How should I? How should a person be, really? Uh, the fact of the matter is, we have been put here on this rock, and this rock is—we is, uh, don't know where we are. And it is entirely possible to experience someone or something that is both disastrously tragic and totally hilarious at the exact same time. And uh, apparently it's our job to make sense of that. Please remember that Kafka was a vegetarian and that Aristotle's nickname while he was at Plato's Academy was, quote, the reader. That's it for now. Thank you for being here. Thanks to Nick and Tosca. Uh, I appreciate it, you guys. This was fun. Did you have fun? Uh, Are you listening to this in public? Uh, are you wearing headphones? If you are, I want you to do me a favor. If you're out there in public, I want you to raise your arms overhead, extend your middle fingers, and I want you to start thrusting your pelvis in the general direction of total strangers. (laughs) 